Hello and welcome to Brainstorm. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree. It's a saying that you could argue applies to kids and their diets. The idea that what they eat and when they eat will shape them for the rest of their adult lives. What kids are eating has become a major focal point in many of the discussions around health and particularly obesity. Some say it's a way to finger wag and lecture at families, often mothers, and project our own fears about the future onto our children. Others argue that what we feed our children matters a great deal for their health as they grow up. So do we worry unduly about children's diets or does the evidence show that what they consume is significant for their health? And if that's true, then what should children eat to give them the best chance at life? That's what we're going to talk about. With me to discuss all this are clinician and scientist Grace O'Malley from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and clinical lead of the Wait to Go programme at the Children's Health Ireland at Temple Street and Liz O'Sullivan, dietitian and lecturer at TU Dublin. Thank you both so much for coming in. And later on to talk a bit about the role of food environments in all of this, I'll be joined by Janice Harrington, Senior Lecturer in Public Health Nutrition in University College Cork and Chair of the Cork Food Policy Council. To start, Grace, when we think about whether it matters to their health, what, what they eat in, in terms of children, you know, the basic question is, do we know what children eat? Um, it's difficult to measure. So we have, you know, population-based surveys, then you can use different methods within um, the labs to look at biomarkers of certain nutrients and that type of thing. And Liz most definitely is the best person to elaborate on, on this. But um, So it's difficult to measure. But we do know that um, the environment has changed and the consumption uh, of foods that are ultra-processed and high in density, uh, high energy density, but with less nutri- nutritional value are consumed more often now compared to, let's say, 15 years ago. Um, and, th- and that's the real worry for people in public health because we do have a window when children are small, particularly obviously in the first thousand days of how their body organs and systems will develop based on what they're exposed to in their environment, their nutritional environment and their movement environment and their sleep environment or their stress environment. So we, we have lots of evidence that um, these exposures can impact health in the short term, but also in the longer term in terms of risk of illness. And most of the studies have looked at risk of illness in adulthood. But so when you, you, your researcher had posed a question of do we know what foods are good, are, we need for health? A lot of the research has looked at it in terms of ill health. Um, and now we do see more of a, I suppose, a move towards functional health and these, these type of studies. Um, so fruit and vegetables, obviously, minerals and vitamins that we need for growth and development. And, and Liz will be able to go into these in detail. Um, and also, you know, oily fish, these type of things. We have good evidence um, that they can help reduce risk of chronic diseases. Liz, it's, it's hard, isn't it, with food and diets? Because, you know, you can't put someone, presumably, you can't get them to eat oily fish morning, noon and night and then think, mm-hmm. OK, is, is that good for them? It's, it's very multidimensional. You know, what do we know about what is beneficial when it comes to what children eat? Yeah, I mean, definitely the challenge is that we don't eat, you know, individual foods. We, we eat a diet and we have a diet pattern that's, that's full of many different types of foods. So it's nearly impossible to say one individual food is good and one is bad because everything is related to the entirety of what you're eating. Um, but we do have very strong evidence that um, initiating breastfeeding and continuing exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life um, is is ideal with then the introduction of complementary foods and continued breastfeeding then for as long as mum and baby desire. Um, and so 
around, you know, the introduction of complementary foods. The advice around that has kind of historically just been based on sensible expert opinion where, you know, the advice has historically been start by introducing vegetables so you don't encourage kind of sweet preferences. Um, it's, you know, it seems it's reasonable advice. We don't have, um, not to my knowledge anyway, very kind of distinct, clear evidence to say starting with a fruit is going to lead down a path of, of sweet preference. Um, but, you know, families and parents want some sort of guidance in terms of how to introduce complementary foods. Um, and, and there is plenty of that available. The HSE have um, information that's provided to all parents about kind of um, weaning and they provide a book to parents for age zero to two to give information about that. I mean, just to talk about breastfeeding, which is what do you know the most about? I mean, it's obviously a sensitive subject for women because the supports aren't always there and some women find they can't breastfeed. Mm-hmm. But but looking at the scientific research, um, it is indisputable, is it, that breast milk is by far the best option for health? Yeah, and I think it there, to an extent it depends on the context that you're living in. So in Ireland, we are what we would call a resource-rich nation. So we have good sanitation, good water supply most of the time, except when we boil water notices every now and again. Um, but in those situations, formula, if it's made up according to the instructions, can be made quite safely. Um, now in resource-poor settings, that's a, a serious source of infection. But what we observe and what the evidence tells us is that even in resource-rich settings like Ireland, um, breastfed babies are much less likely to have infections, particularly in that first year of life. So that would be things like ear infections and gastrointestinal infections. And there's also pretty good evidence that they perform better at um, IQ test scores in their kind of early years, kind of between six and ten. Um, and we have some kind of Irish cross-sectional evidence to... to um, say that as well about the about the IQ piece. Why is that? Um that's that's hard to tell. I've seen some evidence um that breastfed babies they're kind of the grey matter of the brain um forms a little bit differently. So that's potentially um a rationale. Another theory that people would put out there is that it can involve a lot of eye contact between the primary caregiver and the baby. That said bottle feeding can do that also you know you're you're still most likely holding a baby in your arms um so it's not entirely clear um but and part of it could relate to a maternal diet you know if maternal diet contains more um omega-3 fats that's going to be higher in the breast milk which we know helps with brain development so that's another potential reason Uh, Grace you know there's very familiar forms of dietary advice when it comes to children that Mm. I think it's fair to say a lot of us will have definitely heard you know it's good to eat vegetables and drink water it's bad to eat salty sugary fatty ultra processed foods it's bad to eat too much does the science back all that up? Well we know that Water and milk should be the child's only um, drinks, basically. Um, We can have, you know, the old adage of uh, many things in moderation rings true. Um, But it is very important in terms of healthy hydration that children get calcium and vitamin D for their growth and that their main source of hydration is water. So, I mean, there's lots of evidence to to support that and that sugary drinks, juices should be kept to a a minimum. Um, And we know that Protein, obviously, intake of protein is really important for growth and development and vitamins and minerals are needed for growth and repair. Um, so foods rich in all, as, as Liz said earlier, it's the interaction of all these foods together. Um, 
And sometimes, so there was a recent work with Food Safety Authority of Ireland looking at um, intakes in children one to five years of age. And for example, so protein was, protein intake was at an adequate level, but where it was coming from was quite worrying. So it was from ultra processed meats, which would be very high in salt. So sometimes families are doing their very best to try and give meat or, you know, meat products in terms of growth and development and trying to provide the best for their children. But often um, they're not necessarily as aware of the types of meats that that they're giving and that there might might actually be more of a negative effect potentially in terms of salt content or fat content. So with health outcomes, what are you talking about? What kind of neg- negative effects? Well, salt obviously intake can have a real, real impact on kidney function, um, on the level of hydration of the child. Um, if they're having obviously too much sugar, that can that can affect um, blood glucose levels and risk of diabetes. Um, in a sample of kids that we looked at in our, in CHI at Temple Street and or CSI, um, we saw about just under 300 children who had come to the hospital with obesity and about 50% of them had already had high blood pressure and um, we saw insulin resistance, so this kind of pre-diabetes in over 60%. So these are children as, as young as seven and eight years of age. So we already know that whatever lifestyle factors are going on in these kids at a young age, including diet, sleep and, and exercise, are having health impacts at that young age. And, and that's really worrying for those children now, but also into the future for them. So it seems from what you're saying that we have a clear idea of what a poor diet is for children and the health consequences of a poor diet. I think what's really important for people to be able to differentiate is when we talk about nutrition, we're not just talking about an energy source. And I think often that's what we understand because we think of ourselves being hungry and we need energy and we need energy for fuel but it's actually the, the nutrients including energy sources that we need for growth and development and injury or for our immune function so you know foods if, if children aren't getting um, you know adequate vitamin vitamin C B12 iron we know their immunity can be affected and in times like we find ourselves now this is very important so ensuring that children have a nutritionally adequate diet and often in obesity we'll see that the child obviously has a a large energy source but they have nutritional deficiencies and that's something I think of a paradox that people don't understand because of stigma they think oh well the child should they're well fed but actually we see nutritional deficiencies in them. Um, You can be malnourished. Absolutely and that's the double paradox. Uh, Grace can you Mm. talk a little bit about this emerging science of our internal body clocks, the reason that some mm. of us like to get up in the morning early and some of us like to not get up early. Mm. And the, 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 the question about it's not just what children eat, but it's when they eat. Mm. There has been work looking at the timing of breakfast and ensuring that obviously breakfast isn't skipped and not eating after 8pm, not eating before bedtime. Um, but regarding like throughout the day and the timing, some of it will be very individually um, um, determined and we don't yet know how that works for each of us, I suppose, or for children. Yeah, I think um, one of the things as well to think about here, if you're talking about children, it would depend, you know, what the age of that child is. So if you're thinking about a toddler, you know, a toddler's calorie requirements are actually, you know, considerably higher than, than an adult, you know, because they have so much more growth to do. So people will often say, you know, my toddler's always eating, so they're always snacking. So the only thing I would say is I would be a little bit cautious and I certainly wouldn't encourage anybody to restrict or follow very kind of strict meal patterns because toddlers are hungry all the time and they need 
a lot of snacks and it can be very hard to actually get the kind of required amount of calories into them. So, you know, when, when parents perceive that they're always eating, they may actually be kind of constantly eating. <laughs> they're always growing. So, so there are, you know, huge requirements there and they're so active, you know, jumping off couches and all that requires a lot of energy. So getting back to the fundamental question is what, what should kids eat? Grace? It depends on their age and their developmental stage. So obviously like the little infants will and the little babies will be eating throughout the evening, but they'll be eating breast milk, hopefully, or, or um, formula milk. Um, ideally, they wouldn't be eating um, snacks, baby snacks, these type of products that are being marketed heavily now. Um, definitely not before six months and even between six and, and two, two years because um, in complementary feeding, we need to be giving food, not snacks, even though they might be marketed as being great for the child. Um, and then a varied diet um, with practicing lots of exposure. So they will go through a period of neophobia where they don't want any of these foods that they previously liked and parents need to understand that and then persevere keep exposing them to to different foods and um, variety of textures variety of tastes but also if they refuse it once try and keep exposing for maybe 10 to 15 times Uh, and Liz I presume you'd echo that but I wonder you know in terms of particular food groups is it most beneficial to make sure that children I don't know eat their vegetables eat their meat or whatever in terms of health outcomes I think um a, a diverse diet so a combination of kind of your milk your calcium based protein food so as grace said already calcium and vitamin d are particularly important for growing children so you know things like yogurts milks cheeses um a variety of fruits and vegetables again as grace was saying you know exposure to many different types of things is the thing that's going to encourage kind of a diverse diet but also you know focusing on what your family foods are because that's what your kind of ultimate goal here is to try and kind of have everybody eating a meal together. That's in, you know, in a family situation, that's that's kind of the ideal. And so in that way, you know, feeding your child what you're already eating is a good way to go about it, because then that's what they get used to. And that's what they learn. Just on smaller plates, on smaller plates. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that I would really stress is to um, try to be as relaxed as possible about it you know we would say you know you provide they decide and so you know you give give your child a plate of food and and they will eat some of it or if you're helping them to eat it um but try not to kind of overly encourage them or you know kind of coerce them into eating food they have to kind of get involved in the decision making here and somewhat kind of learn how to regulate and manage their own intake and you'll sometimes observe you know a plate of food that a toddler has eaten And they've left the tiniest bite behind and they were just full and finished. Whereas as adults, we've gotten very used to if there's only a tiny bit left, you may as well just eat it. But it should actually kind of be encouraged in children to actually learn, Okay, if you're full, great, you know, and and encourage and, and praise that type of behavior. Grace O'Malley, Liz O'Sullivan, thank you both very much. Well, what role does the food environment play in all of this? Do we put too much emphasis on personal responsibility and not enough maybe on regulation and and government policy? Well, to talk about this, I'm joined now by Janice Harrington, Senior Lecturer in Public Health Nutrition in the School of Public Health, University College Cork and the Chair of the Cork Food Policy Council. Janice, thanks for coming along. Just describe briefly, what do we mean when we talk about food environment? Well, Ella, the food environments are everything and every every time we come in contact and experience food. So from when we get up in the morning, food in our houses, to, you know, your 
journey to school to work and um, the advertising you see in really you know on your journey when you go into the supermarket everything that you experience in relation to food within the supermarket and um, within you know your environs around your workplace who you eat with where you eat what you eat so it's basically so it's not just food it's also things like adverts Yes, so the advertising that we see um, and the advertising that we're exposed to. So, for example, you go into a, you know, to buy petrol, diesel for your car. What are you exposed to when you go and buy diesel for your car? In the forecourt there. So everything we see, everything we experience, everything we taste in relation to our foods. I mean, we hear a lot about the importance of individual responsibility, both yeah. ourselves, but also, you know, the parents controlling what their their children uh, eat. What do we know about the role of these food environments and what impact then they have on, on individual diets? So I'm just thinking, I don't know, if I live in an area where there's a lot of junk food mm. uh, or a lot of advertising for, you know, particular foods that kids are mm. partial to. Um, does that affect my diet and the outcomes? It has a huge impact on our diet. So if you think um, we have a certain amount of individual responsibility, but when we're constantly being bombarded and, the, you know, foods that are you know highly processed um, with, you know, very little nutritional or health values, um, they're normalised within our society. We see them everywhere. Everywhere we go, we're seeing them. So they're quite normalised. And I suppose subconsciously, uh, we're you know drawn to to those types of foods. So if you think of when you go into a supermarket to do your shopping, and you think of the first thing in many supermarkets that you're, you see are you know these promotional offers, two for the price of one, typically on foods that are you know high in fats, sugars, and salts. So. And so, from a research point of view, from a population mm. point of view, is it the case that where you have less of this kind of advertising and, and more healthy, affordable food, that actually the health outcomes are better? Yeah, and so we see that um, in areas where there are you know, higher densities of, for example, fast food outlets, that the consumption of those fast uh, from those fast food outlets are you know much higher. It's easier; they're easier, they're more accessible, um, compared to areas where those outlets aren't as accessible. Um, and and now you've very interestingly mapped the the whole of Cork. Am I right, Cork City? in terms of the food environment there? Yeah, so what we did was we looked at, um, with the Cork Food Policy Council, we wanted to look at setting out a strategy, a food strategy for the city. So to be able to do that, we needed to understand the types of food environments within Cork City. We needed to understand what types of food retail outlets were there within the city, where they were situated and in what types of neighbourhoods and what what was around those neighbourhoods. So we mapped every food outlet, so a retail store, a four courts, cafes, um, a supermarkets a, around the city, within the, the city boundaries. And we were able to look at, I suppose, describing some of the neighbourhoods where some of these outlets were. So we saw in um, some of the more deprived areas, we saw that um, 
uh, with higher densities of fast food outlets, for example. Um, we looked at schools and the position of primary schools and secondary schools within the city. So this is interesting, you overlaid schools on top of that on top map. Of the, on top of the map. So we had the school map, uh, or where the schools were, and we were able to look at what was around those schools and we saw that many of the primary schools so one in three primary schools were within 400 metres of a fast food outlet secondary schools we saw one in two primary or secondary schools were within walking distance of those fast food outlets and that's just one example but we were also able to look at say for example where um where the community gardens were and where there were areas where there was a potential to have a community garden, but there weren't community gardens there. So it was like, so it's the first time this has been done, certainly in Cork and to my knowledge, in any city in Ireland. And, and what's your response when people would say back to that, look, this is about families taking control of their mm-hmm. children's diets and what they eat and drink. It is about ourselves having individual responsibility mm-hmm to ignore that advertising and and eat healthily? We have a certain amount of control, but when we're constantly bombarded by these, and I think we need need our politicians to step up and to, to help us to create environments that help us make the healthier choices um, whether that be through price regulation or you know a restriction on advertising in the areas of schools um, in the restricting advertising of certain types of foods to children be it through social media broadcast media or print media as well and I think that is really really important and people may be aware of these uh, what they call no fry zones and the idea that uh, around a kind of I don't know is it 500 metres of a school that you don't have you know places to buy fish and chips or whatever Mm -hmm. I just wonder you know if a government policy came in how like that how do you check to make sure those policies actually work because the tricky thing about food and diets is it's so multi multifaceted it's very hard to pinpoint exactly it's very what works and what doesn't yeah it's very it is very hard but what you can do and you can't say that in in you know, bringing in a policy like that is going to cure or fix all of our societal problems in relation to our a poor dietary habits but what we can say is we can look at the you know restriction of consumption within you know within the school day for example look at children's diets and within the school day where are they going to get their food you know if those food outlets aren't available um you know they're they're restricted and they you know that we have to I suppose think of other ways and other you know and I suppose that's coupled with you know school nutrition policies and you know nutrition standards for schools and um, so we can look we can look at those and I suppose recently very recently we had an expert uh, panel as part of a looking at food policies in Ireland as part of a wider European project and one of the key priority areas identified by that expert panel was in relation to those no fry zones around schools as well. It was one of a number of suite, but it was one of the ones that they had prioritised as it's something that should be considered um, to help improve our food environments for our children. And finally, briefly, mm-hmm. uh, anyone listening locally who is interested in setting up their own food policy council, mm-hmm. how should they do it? What's the first thing you can do? Um start the conversation and identify who are the key people that need to be involved and you have to have a champion you have to have the right people around the table 
um, and that that is key because if you don't have the right people it is it's going to be much more difficult and I presume uh, from everything you say I, I presume this answer will be yes but uh, you know in terms of a national policy mm-hmm. national food policy we have farming policy we have health policy a food policy isn't something that we hear much about here in yeah. Ireland could that go some way to, to, to helping solve some of these broader issues, particularly when it comes to questions about the diet of children and the food environments they live in? I think so. I think we do need that national food policy. It is, I suppose, um, we are somewhat constrained by the our European policies as well in terms of food and agriculture and health. But um, we do need to ha- have that conversation and have that national food policy. But I think at local level, if we had local strategies that can support a national food policy. Janice Harrington, a senior lecturer in public health nutrition at the School of Public Health and University College Cork and chair of the Cork Food Policy Council. Thank you so much for joining me this evening.